0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the ChemConverse podcast. I'm your host, Henry.
1: And I'm Medina. Today we're introduced by Dr. Nick Cepini. Nick, welcome. We're very happy to have you here.
2: Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's great to be on. Always like chatting with folks.
1: Could you introduce yourself briefly?
2: Sure. My name is Nick Chiappini. I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow in the lab of Rob Knowles at Princeton University. I did my PhD at Stanford with Justin Dubois, working on nitrene transfer catalysis with rhodium. Before that, I did my undergraduate work at a small school called Drew University in New Jersey, where I was an atmospheric chemist. Bit of a pivot between that and grad school. And then now I'm bathed in blue light and doing photochemistry. So... I'm from New Jersey originally, so I'm happy to be back, even though the state gets a terrible reputation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's really cool. First question, Nick, to kick us off, could you maybe describe your research in like three words? Essentially, it's excited state catalysis.
2: Essentially, it's trying to access canonical reactive intermediates, things like carbocations or carbon-centered radicals, both sp3 and sp2, and trying to access them in ways that like might not seem immediately intuitive. So Instead of ionizing like a tertiary alcohol, what if you could start with some other functional group and get to a carbocation that way? So my project is a little bit more like far flung and it's not totally ready for the spotlight yet, but like the general area that I'm in is more in like these excited state, intermediate generation reactions. Sorry if that's too vague.
1: <laughs> it's perfect. It's always hard to, you know, keep it short when someone asks you about your research. You're like, let me tell you all the story. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: So you mentioned that you studied atmospheric chemistry in your undergrad. And I was curious to ask how come you made that shift into like organic metallic chemistry and now like photochemistry, and how was the shift?
2: So my undergraduate institution didn't have like a massive organic chemistry program, and there wasn't really many faculty doing organic research. So I knew I was interested in organic. And essentially my physical chemistry professor who became my advisor for atmospheric chemistry was just like, look there's some opportunities to do organic e-things in my group. I know it's pretty PCAM heavy and that can seem scary, but like, I think there are some cool things that you can do here that might get you, you know, some experience. And I think that's part of the reason why I joined the group. I also really liked him. And I also thought that the like research was cool because essentially the main research question that the group was interested in is looking at how light can drive chemical oxidation or like redox processes on surfaces in the atmosphere. So essentially not looking at gas phase per se, but more like, say, if you had like a small aerosol or like small solid particles with things absorbed onto them, how does that behave when you hit it with sunlight and like interrogating that with different types of spectroscopy. But we were both on the same page from the get-go that my passion was organic and he went out of his way to find what's called in the U.S. like an REU opportunity for me to do organic. So I did a summer at Harvey Mudd College out in California where I did total synthesis for like a month and a half. And then I was like, okay, yeah, I really like this.
1: <laughs> I love how you made a loop. You started with light and then you...
2: Yeah, yeah. Like it was not by any means intentional, but <laughs> that's sort of how it shook out.
0: It's a really interested and kind of varied career. I guess like going on from that, because obviously you've done lots of different topics. Could you maybe talk about your approach to scientific literature and kind of how you read it?
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. So I think my biggest philosophy with reading the literature is like, I try to read in, I guess, atypical places. I definitely read Jackson, like Nature and, you know, all the sort of top-tier journals, but I feel like the papers that catch my eye more are from sort of like lesser known journals or like less prestigious, I guess, journals. One of my favorite journals to read is Chemlet, which is from the Japanese Chemical Society. And like, what I really like about it is that a lot of times you will see papers there, especially from younger Japanese PIs who might not be publishing in JAX yet, but like you will see stuff and be like, okay, yeah, I could see how this could very easily be a series of JAX papers in like five years. Or like, I can see this person absolutely being like a rising star. And on the other hand, I also like really, really like reading like the Wiley organic journals. So like Your J or Chem, Chem Your J, you know, Asian J O C like. Because I never know what I'm going to find in there. And like a lot of times you'll see really strange transformations. (laughs) And that's something I really like. I mean, I'm immersed in photochemistry and sort of, you know, nitrene catalysis from grad school and things like that. So I like seeing things that I'm not used to or like seeing something and be like, huh, I didn't know that that element could do that. (laughs) Or like, I didn't know that. You know, Selenium was interesting for things besides being smelly and horrible.
0: (laughs) That's a really interesting approach. I think, yeah, most people kind of sway towards the bigger impact journals, but certainly looking at the, like you said, smaller kind of impact places is a good way to go, maybe.
2: I will say it's, like, definitely important to stay abreast of, like, the advances in, like, Jack's in the top-tier journals, too. By no means ignore that, but I guess, you know, if anything, my viewpoint is that, like, even if you don't read it really closely, the chances that someone in your lab will have read it and will like direct you to it are much higher than like someone in your lab having read, say, an obscure Chemlet or BCSJ and directing you to that. So like you're more likely to find something that will be not redundant with something that someone else in your lab might bring up.
1: So what do you think attracts you in the paper? So when you first look through it, what kind of factors are you considering?
2: So the first thing I always look at is figures. And I think in a paper that like gets me really excited, I should be able to like read through just the figures and like not even like really look at the text per se and have a sense of what the main story of the paper is. Generally, like the number of papers where I read like word by word through is pretty slim, but the way that I sort of window that is like I'll read through the figures and see if there's something that's like really interesting to me and then I'll sort of read around that and decide if I want to read the main body of the work. But I think in terms of like methods papers, which is sort of what I'm the most, I guess, immersed in, what excites me in looking at like, say a substrate scope or something is, you know, like, is each substrate teaching you something? Or is it like a series of like, basically just to fill out like a Hammett plot or something like that. And like, I'm much more interested in like substrates that like, kind of have interesting architectures or like each one like can tell you, you know, oh, this is, kind of a functional group compatibility that I wouldn't have thought about, but might be interesting. The challenge with that approach is that differently resourced institutions will have like different access to like, say, interesting compounds. But there's also like very much an opportunity for you to be creative with your substrates and learn a lot from that. So I don't know. That's one of the things that excited me the most about methods is like, I love like saying, I want to do this type of reaction and then designing a substrate that uses that in the synthesis so that I can learn how to do that reaction. So I'd be like, oh, I wanna learn how to do a Sonogashira because I've never done one before. And then designing a substrate that either has an alkyne in it or like uses an alkyne as an intermediate.
1: I guess one of the other purposes of this podcast is to address important issues in academia and talk to people who experience something like that with the purpose of helping people who listen. So one of the things as a member of the LGBTQ community, we were wondering whether you could talk about your time in grad school and could you reflect on people's perception of LGBTQ scientists and whether you dealt with some unfairness or...
2: Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, so I came out in undergraduate. I wasn't out at all in high school. And then I just got to undergraduate. I was like, I'm going to be out and then just decided like cold turkey to do it. And I mean, in grad school, I was very out and... I would say loud rather than out and proud, like out and loud from day one. Cause my my viewpoint was like, I don't really want to be in an environment where like, you know, I feel like I have to like hide my identity. And when I joined, there were definitely a good number of queer chemists at Stanford. But like, at least within my research group at the time, I was the only one. So I was just like, you know what, if nothing else, I'm going to be loud and make it like more of a space for like the queers who come after me to like, feel like they could be like out more outward about it in terms of like homophobia within the field you know I'm very much insulated by being you know a white dude who can pass a straight <laughs> at least especially if somebody doesn't talk to me for a long period of time or doesn't see me gesticulating but the main form that I've faced is more like just subtle things like people saying like oh you know like your science should take priority over like activism or like your science is like You know what's important, or you don't need to lead with being like queer all the time, and just like comments like that, but nothing like to the level of like, you know, calling me a slur or something like that. And I very much recognize that that's probably in large part due to like my gender and my ethnicity more than anything. I will say, like, in my hometown, which is pretty conservative, like, I absolutely got that in high school and middle school, but like, I mean, that was before I was even out. So it was just kind of like, you know, just presumptive queer bullying rather than like active queer bullying, like knowing that I'm queer in terms of advice for people who are facing it. I think it's extremely contact dependent and, you know, the best advice I could say is like find a network and like basically reach out to, you know, other queer students at your university, or if there are queer faculty members in the department that you feel comfortable talking to making those connections is really good because even if they can't directly help you with like a person who is being really shitty, like they might be able to give you advice to say like, here's how you can deal with that. Or like maybe this is a route that you could look into to address that if you wanted to address that in like a more formal sense. But more than anything, I think just having community like around to talk to and like commiserate with is definitely really helpful in terms of like lessening the burden of like having to deal with that shit on like a daily basis.
0: No, no, definitely. I think you touched on it briefly about Twitter and like the power of that as a platform, you know, both for uh, LGBTQ plus community, as well as, you know, something like Black and STEM. They're both, you know, big communities with lots of people from various backgrounds. So it's, I guess for you, it's nice to have that support and kind of, although you may not know someone by in person, but to have them there on Twitter to talk to and get that support probably is very, very helpful.
2: Oh yeah, that's one thing that's like, totally different from when. So I wasn't very active on Twitter until probably, you know, my second or third year of graduate school. And like comparing like the queer community that like, you know, I knew then versus like what I know now through Twitter and like the network of like POC chemists and like chemists from all over the world that I know now is way, way bigger than anything that I knew before that. And in that sense, I think it's a really nice avenue to be able to connect with your peers if you feel like your institution doesn't have like a lot of folks like you that you can relate to and you know that's true of like basically any axis of like marginalization like you very well might be the only black graduate student in your program and like being able to connect with like other black graduate students is you know something that you can't get if like there are literally no other black graduate students in your program
1: Yeah, I'm glad to hear that you didn't have any, you know, serious issues in grad school because I feel like I couldn't even imagine how many people are going through really serious stuff. So as you mentioned, I think having a community is always good.
0: Going on to kind of obviously the work you're doing at the moment and where you've been, what would you say your personal ambitions are maybe for the next five years or so?
2: Yeah. So my personal ambition is I want to end up as a professor at a primarily undergraduate institution. So the type of institution I'd like to end up at is someplace that has a mix of both research and teaching, because I really enjoy both. And the reason why I lean more towards the undergraduate institution than like say an R1 institution is I really like the opportunity to sort of broaden participation in the field from the bottom up. And I had a really, really good experience with like, you know, my primarily undergraduate institution. So the idea of one, getting people excited about science to like bringing people in who might otherwise be like, you know, I don't know if this is for me or like, I don't know if like chemistry is like, what's my passion versus like med school or like economics or something else. And also just like, being able to use what I've had from like my career so far in terms of connections to sort of guide people in a way that like might match what they want to accomplish. But I think more than anything, like the thing that excites me about it is being able to stay engaged in lab as well as like in the classroom, because especially at the smaller schools, like because there's not a graduate student presence or a postdoc presence to train, a lot of the training is on the, hands of the PI or like in terms of like making sure that there's technology transfer between generations so it gives me an excuse to continue being a lab monkey because I absolutely love working in lab and I feel like I would go insane if I didn't have an opportunity to do that in where
0: I ended up that's really interesting I think it's good to have those ambitions and you clearly kind of have a you're a man of a plan as they say you know
2: That's what they say. (laughs) Whether the plan will pan out remains to be seen, but I'm hopeful. I'll probably apply to a few places in the coming autumn and then some more the next year, depending on what the results of that are.
0: Well, best of luck.
1: Mm -hmm. Fingers crossed. Thank you. (laughs) So pandemic, did cause a lot of things to change. And I feel like a lot of people change their perspective on lives and other things. And we were wondering whether you could talk about what you're grateful for now that you took for granted before the pandemic.
2: Right. Probably the thing that I'm most grateful for, and I think this is common with a lot of people, is just being around other people and having face-to-face interactions with people. Because you can get to know people over Zoom, but like, it definitely feels less personal than like, you know, working side by side with somebody. And oh, God, like when we got the okay to go back to lab, like just even in shifts, I was just so excited to be around another human being (laughs) instead of just being like alone for that. And I think the other thing is just like the little things and like just being able to go out and not having to worry constantly about, you know, some horrible plague (laughs) infecting you or the ones you love from that is very much like that's definitely something that I was grateful for. And then I think also like related to that is just traveling to conferences and like in terms of chemistry, professional development, or just like getting to see your friends, honestly, because that's the best part of a conference is getting to see is definitely something I miss a lot in terms of the pandemic. So my postdoc has more or less kind of straddled the pandemic. So I was here for about three months before COVID like really took hold. And then it's been, you know, here since
0: then. So I don't know
2: if both of you started your PhDs during it.
0: So I started mine October of 2019. So I was kind of the same. Okay, so you started the same time as I started my postdoc then.
1: I started in August. So in the middle of pandemic. It was not fun to move countries. I kind of had to push myself to meet with people with all the COVID restrictions. But I was telling myself that if you don't meet anyone right now, you're gonna get insane because you don't know anyone. And it's crazy. So I'm very grateful for a great community here.
0: I mean, I agree with you on the small things being, you know, the key part, you know, even just going outside for a daily walk, you know, you took that for granted and now you can just kind of do it. It's not so bad, but when you're in lockdown, it's like you couldn't do any of that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And then like also isolation from family to like, especially if your family doesn't live close or, you know, you don't live in the same household, then it's very possible that you've gone basically the entire pandemic without seeing anybody outside of Zoom and You know, that's really, really rough emotionally.
1: I agree. Completely agree. And also the conferences that you mentioned, I was like, yes, this is so true because I took a gap year after undergrad and I've been to conferences in undergrad and I loved it so much that I had been waiting for a year and then now I have to wait another year. And I'm like, I just can't wait for, let me go, please.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure I remember seeing back in, I think it was November in Sydney. I think they had a chemistry conference and you just saw everyone, no social distancing, no mask or anything, just in a conference center. It's like, that's the future it's crazy
2: yeah i'm hopeful that things will be controlled enough that pacific chem will still be on for this coming year because oh my god i really want to go <laughs> like i've never been before but it just sounds like the best conference ever
1: <laughs> don't they all sound like that though
2: yeah i mean they do but like pacific chem is also in hawaii <laughs> and it's just kind of like wow
1: it will be very hard to work there
2: Yeah.
0: Got a random question for you. We always ask this kind of during the episode. So, kind of what is the last book you read?
2: Oh, yeah. The last book that I read was A Disordered Cosmos by Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. So Chanda is a professor of astrophysics at University of New Hampshire. And in addition to all of her amazing physics work, so she works on axions and basically trying to pull apart, you know, what gives dark matter mass and whatnot. And in addition to that, she's very, very active in like social dialogue and the sociology of science as well. Like, especially through the context of, you know how does blackness interact with like physics. Disordered Cosmos is really kind of an approach to that and like breaking down, you know, how physics interacts and like all the ways that you might not realize and just more broadly how science is like impacted by white empiricism in ways that you may not realize. So. I can't recommend it highly enough. I just absolutely love it. And she's a really engaging writer. God, I am like the president of the Chanda fan club. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> That's really interesting. Hmm. I've not read many physics books. I know there's a few from, I think, Neil deGrasse Tyson that are supposed to be quite good.
2: Yeah, the type of thing is, it is a physics book, but you do not need to know physics to appreciate it at all. Like, basically everything that you need to know is contained within the book more or less. And like, it does a good job of like introducing you to topics, even if you might not be familiar at all outside of the context of
0: reading it. That's good to know. Yeah, the book I read recently was Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. It's a really, really interesting book on essentially the science of sleep and, you know, learning about circadian rhythms and all these things. And in a way, it's kind of made me adapt the way, you know, my routines of, you know, bedtime schedules and things like this, because you don't think about it, probably from, you know, when you were 10 years old, and your mum gave you a bedtime, there was a reason she did that. Yes, it was to Give you that routine, but it was mostly to make sure you have those eight hours of sleep and so you feel refreshed, you know. Whereas if you don't have that routine, you don't feel, you know, as good as you could. So it's kind of reading that and learning the science behind it. It's quite interesting. I don't know, Medina, have you read any good books recently?
1: I have not read any books for ages because I'm very addictive reader. So if I start reading and I like it. I better finish it the same day that I started or like within the same week. So I will not be a productive chemist if I start reading a book. I am more of a podcast person, which is not surprising since we have a podcast. (laughs) No way. (laughs) No way, right? I like to listen because when you listen, you can do other stuff, which is, I guess, another reason for reading, in quotes, audiobooks. But there's something addictive about it, which is why I don't watch TV shows that I like. I watch something very stupid (laughs) that you hate yeah that I hate exactly like something stupid in a different language so I can practice
0: languages I think audiobooks are great and I think obviously you know for those that may be dyslexic or something like that you know they can use audiobooks as a way of consuming you know books one good example is Lord of the Rings trilogy I think it's narrated by I think Stephen Fry and that's just such a good series you know same with Harry Potter series you know they're classics that you can listen to and kind of just fall asleep to and it's just brilliant to listen to I think rather than have like a massive paperback that you might carry about
2: so so like the book that I mentioned is nonfiction. obviously I'm a very avid reader I read a ton but like one of my favorite things to read is I actually read a lot of like young adult or YA novels and I tend to skew more towards like queer YA or like queer YA sci-fi types of thing just because like It's sort of like, you know, my treat for reading. Like, I really, really enjoy it. It's always enjoyable. And like, the plots sometimes can be redundant, but a lot of times, like, especially with more modern stuff, you get really exciting or interesting plot lines that you might not have expected. Or like a new approach to a really tired trope. Like, you know, when you hear magical school, the first thing you think is Harry Potter, but like, it's very interesting when you see a series that like takes that and like takes a completely different angle on it that doesn't just feel like Hogwarts, but you know, vampires or Hogwarts, but robots or something like that.
1: Mm -hmm. I think one of the books that got me impressed so much, it's been years since i read it, but I liked it so much that I highly recommend it. I like reading biographies. It's called A Piece of Cake. It's a memoir by Cupcake Brown. It's about an incredibly strong woman. She's African-American and she ended up being a lawyer but she was a drug addict she had a very tough childhood and it's always inspiring to read what people go through and where they end up yeah it's great
0: yeah certainly i guess a question we could ask you nick is kind of do you have a favorite music genre by any chance
2: oh i mean very much pop like all of my playlists for lab extremely skew more towards 80s i mean probably my most listened to is abba and bony m and and early Madonna very very poppy but like a lot of my lab mates do like alternative music too and I love that I mean I'm generally a music fan and like I will listen to basically anything pretty much
0: are you a Taylor Swift fan by any chance
2: oh yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely
1: yeah shout out to Cesar right now
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah yeah like SZA Megan the Stallion I mean you name it generally I like strong women in pop or like strong queer people in pop or like you know rock or anything like that but i also very much have my my chemical romance days too so pretty varied tastes but abba is pretty much a constant fixture i can guarantee you that so do you have a favorite one of their songs by any chance it's like choosing a favorite child (laughs) (laughs) oh god i think one of my favorites which is kind of like a less common one is The Visitors. I really like that one. It's not one that's appeared in like any of the Mamma Mia's, so it's not usually on like the first track, but oh, it's very enjoyable.
0: Mine's probably Dancing Queen, to be honest. It's a classic. I yep.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna say, I'm surprised you didn't say
2: Dancing Yeah, Queen. SOS is great. Man After Midnight, Ring Ring, Hey Hey Helen. Oh God, so many, so, so many.
1: Basically everything. <laughs>
2: I know it's all generic and very boring, but, like, (laughs) I
1: mean, that's... No, it's cool to be passionate about someone like that. It's really cool. One of the philosophical questions we had, which is my favorite question, to be honest, if you had a choice to have a couple of lives, if you had a chance to be a completely different person and just start from day one that you were born... And you can have a different identity, you can have a different gender, different name, different country, everything is different. What lives would you like to have and why?
2: I think I would keep a lot, like I wouldn't change being queer at all. I mean, that's a huge thing. I would not give it up at all. I think it's made my life much more interesting. And one of the common refrains is like, you know, being gay is not like the only thing I am or like not the main thing that I am, but it's just kind of like, what if it is? It's like pivotal to my identity. And, you know, I kind of refute the fact that like, You know, I can't keep it as like a central part of myself. But in terms of like the big things that I would change, I think if I was not terrified of heights, I would like love to be an astronaut or like, you know, work in space. One of the other things that I had thought about before going into chemistry was, you know, being an astronomer or like just staring at the stars forever. (laughs) Teaching was definitely something I was always interested in. And my mom's a high school teacher. I could definitely see myself doing that if like I had to start over again. Yeah, I'm trying to think what else like would really stick out. People have joked to be like, oh, you should have been a politician. I'm just like, oh, God, no, that would have not gone well." Like just because like my fuse and patience for like incompetence and tomfoolery would not go well, I don't think. Like a couple different options, but all keeping like, I guess the core parts of my life I really enjoyed a lot of it, like even with challenges.
0: Yeah, I think for me, I always enjoyed at school before I, I guess, enjoyed chemistry as much as I do. I'd say I wanted to maybe be a writer. So I enjoyed English at school a lot. So like doing poetry and analysis, stuff like that. So I did think about being a writer, writing a book and things like that. I think it's something I'd still like to do. So, you know, if the chance arises at some point, I'd like to try and do that. But you know, I always try and analyze things in depth. So, you know, if I could, I think I'd probably, yeah, become an author or something. I think that's what I'd probably have done. What about you, Medina?
1: I feel like it's one of the questions. My answer could be like, for hours. (laughs) Because you can be so creative and specific, right? You could be like, oh, I want to be born in, I don't know, France and have this sort of identity and go to this bakery shop. I don't know. I love writing stories. So I think that's where that question is coming from. If I want to keep it short, as vague as it may sound, I would like to have a chance to live a completely different life, different financial situation, different country of origin, different gender, and see what it is like to have different experiences in life. And there are so many different opportunities. Just experiencing a couple of them is very interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Henry, it's interesting you say writing. So writing was one of the things that like I really struggled with a lot in school. And until like, you know, basically, I got to college and did like scientific writing. But like nowadays, it's like sort of one of my relaxing activities. So I write a lot of fan fiction, actually, to de-stress. It's a really good outlet. And it's one of the things that I find really fun is just writing for, you know, nobody's consumption, but my own, basically.
0: No, cool. I think if people can find that outlet, and I think certainly it's something the pandemic's brought on, is kind of people finding passions, hobbies that they may have either they had before and didn't have time to do and then they did, or you know, something completely new that they've taken on. I know, Medina, you play the piano quite a bit.
1: I'm playing piano since I was like So it's something that never changes. But with the pandemic, I don't think anything changed. I'm traveling. I mean, I'm not traveling at all. Usually you just can't keep me in one place for a weekend. So I think that's one of the things that changed at the pandemic. But other than that, I became more extroverted, for sure, because you can't meet people anywhere. And if you live alone, you have to push the boundaries. Well, we made a lot of things on Twitter. So I think that's another thing that inspired
0: No, totally. I think without Twitter, I think none of this would have been possible. So I think shout out to everyone.
1: (laughs) Nick, I was wondering, you said that you're writing stories and Henry mentioned that too. Do you guys read your stories afterwards? Because I definitely do.
2: A lot of the stuff that I write, it's like multi-chapter stuff a lot of the time. So like, I am not going to give away my pen name because that is my outlet but like I'll post it on like, you know, whatever site. And like, if people have like comments, I'll be like, oh wow, people are actually interested in reading this. And it like motivates me to either improve it or like, you know, write further chapters of whatever I'm writing. So yeah, I mean, I definitely go back and read it, especially like if people are just like, oh, this was really cool or like, oh, okay. Like maybe then I read it and I'm just like, well, I wrote that really badly. I should go back and rewrite this (laughs) again you know, so that it doesn't sound like a fourth grader wrote it.
0: (laughs) That's really interesting. So, I mean, Nick, if people want to kind of reach out to you, how could they kind of get in touch? Twitter is probably the best way to
2: do that. I mean, so on Twitter, my handle is at NDChiapini. That's basically my main social media, I would say. I have an Instagram, but it's like if people want chemistry, (laughs) it's like not very chemistry at all. People can feel free to shoot me an email if they wanted to. It's just the same as my Twitter handle, but at Princeton.edu. Twitter is definitely best, I would say.
0: (laughs) Cool. I can't thank you enough for coming on. I think we've had a really, really good conversation. I think we've definitely learned a lot about what you do and, you know, what your thoughts on a lot of different things. So thanks for coming along.
2: Of course, yeah. I know I'm probably much more of a shit show than, <laughs> than, than, than the other guests no. we've had so far, but... No,
1: every guest is unique and that's what we love about it. Everyone has different experiences and different stories, different personalities and everyone is yeah. awesome,
0: so... Totally. Everyone's different. Everyone's brilliant. Keep being you. That's all we can say, I guess. Brilliant. Well, thanks everyone for listening. If you want to reach out to us on Twitter, you can follow us over at @ChemCombosPod. pod. And yeah, have a great day. Yeah, have a nice week.
1: Bye. Bye.